Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, it is hour two of Mornings with Carmen on this Monday, May the 9th, 2022. Go grab the first hour of the show if you missed it. Uh, It's definitely worth a listen. You can find it at MyFaithRadio.com in the podcast for Mornings with Carmen, or you can check it out right there on the Faith Radio app if that's where you're listening today. All right, so here is my Monday morning weekend sports report. Well, no, let's think about it this way. Let's think about it in terms of ourselves. All right. You got in late, last minute, in fact, uh, and only because another runner was scratched. Like seconds before the deadline, they added your name to the litany of runners. The odds were 80 to 1. Almost everyone was betting not only that you'd finish out of the money, almost everyone was betting that you would finish dead last. But in this case, the last became first. I'm talking, of course, about Rich Strike, the Colt who wasn't even in the Kentucky Derby until Friday um, when Ethereal Road was scratched, making room for this little chestnut Colt who had only won twice in his whole career which was short, by the way. He's had a short career. He's young. He's just a baby. Okay. Um, they found out 30 seconds before the deadline on Friday, and that's when his owner, Rick Dawson, um, said, let's put him in the race. Really uh, always feel if, you know, you just get your shot, then you, sh- you can take your shot and you can win. Well, that's exactly what happened. And so I think this morning there are all kinds of uh, things that we could say about this. One would be... Um, There are times that the last shall be first, and there are times that the last actually do finish first, and this is one of those, and so it does give us an opportunity to to point to that language and and maybe even talk about, um, well, it's in Matthew chapter 20, uh, and it's actually in in, in like a Mother's Day context. I mean, if you want to link the two. Um, So it's the mother of the so-called sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. Um, it's their mother who comes to Jesus and makes this appeal, kneeling before Jesus. She wants to ask him for something, and he says, what do you want? And she says, um, say that these two sons of mine can sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. And, you know, clearly she misunderstands who he is. She misunderstands the kind of kingdom that he's instituting. She misunderstands what's it, what it's going to take um, to ascend um, to the throne of his messiahship. She does not understand uh, what uh, what ha- is going to come. And so Jesus actually says, uh, you know, you will drink my cup, uh, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant. That's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Uh, and th- it leads to this whole, you know, jealousy controversy among the disciples. And Jesus eventually says, you know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The last uh, shall be first. The first shall be last. There are all kinds of conversations in Scripture uh, you know, about the reversal of fortune. And so um, I think those are opportunities uh, to talk uh, to talk about rich strike in a way that's kind of fun today and brings the gospel to bear on the conversation of the day. I also think there's an opportunity to talk about what it looks like and uh, to live ready, to live ready to take your shot when the opportunity comes. I mean, what if you you were granted an opportunity today, today, uh, you know, something that's not on your schedule, um, but a divine appointment that you know, only God has set. Uh, the race is going to be, you know, one and a quarter mile long, and it's going to take under two minutes or right at two minutes. What if I told you that for two minutes you were going to have the opportunity to have the stage, um, the world stage, the eye of everyone upon you, and you were going to have an opportunity to take your shot for kingdom advancement? You know, would you be ready to run? Would you have prepared in such a way as to complete the the race that God might yet set before you? All right, there are some ways to think about uh, the victory of Rich Strike in the Kentucky Derby. If you haven't seen the video, it is really extraordinary. All right, Dr. Linda Mental up next. We're going to talk about Mental Health Awareness Month, Mental Health Awareness Week. We're going to talk about our mental health. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Warhorse, of course, that is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. A. Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. A. This is my fight song. Take back my life. Dr. Linda Mental is back. You can and should listen to her uh, here on the Dr. Linda Mental show on the Faith Radio Network. And you ought to check out what she's writing at drlindamental.com. Linda, good morning. Good morning. And I, I loved what you said about being ready as a reflection of that race. Uh, it's interesting. I, Our whole family was watching it. We're, none of us gamble, so we didn't have any money or anything on it. But right. I was so awed at the beauty of those horses. So mm. I was not as deep as you, Carmen. <laughs> I was just looking at the design and thinking of the creatures that God designed and how beautiful those horses were. And then I was really tuned in also um, in terms of the the interplay between the owner and the, uh, I mean, the, the people that were working the horse and the jockeys and how they, mm. you know, were so in tune with those horses because horses are used a lot of times in mental health work. We use equine therapy because to get on a horse and to be able to trust and get in tune with that horse is often very therapeutic for a lot of people who struggle with trust. So I have, we have used horses in places that I have been in equine therapy for people with eating disorders, for children with autism. It's, it's a great help to get them on, to get them in tune with an animal and begin to build some trust. So I was thinking a lot of different lines, but such great reflections about how to be ready in life when the opportunity comes. I could not agree more. Um, Equine therapy sounds like absolutely the kind of therapy that I would want to be in. Yeah, I mean, it's very right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's talk about mental health. 
Um, and let's talk about the mental health side of mental health. Let's talk about a larger view of mental health. We often reduce these conversations to depression or suicidal ideation or anxiety or things that are wrong. Let's talk about mental health as, you know, it's a, a large, wide um, category of concern. Well, the ones you mentioned are are two and three of the top three concerns in the in the culture. So anxiety and depression and also trauma. A lot of people have trauma in their background, and that's relates to sometimes also that equine therapy that we just talked about. But when you take a broad view, one of the things you begin to think about is there are risk factors for people developing a mental health disorder. And what we look at is there are some pre uh, there are some genetic predispositions to developing mental health problems. So for example, one of the biggest ones that I have lots of concerns about is substance use. Substance use seems to have a very strong genetic component in terms of your, you know, the predisposition to develop. Now, it doesn't mean you will. It just means that if you begin to use substances, your chance at developing some type of disorder or use disorder could be high. It's a little bit like playing Russian roulette. You don't know if you have those genetic uh, markers or not. And then you combine your genetics with your life experiences. So lots of early, like adverse child experiences, we talk about those, divorce, neglect, abuse, things that happen to children very early on. And then life events that happen to adults, things that are trauma-based, stress-based, difficulties in relationships, all of those, you put them together in a mix. And if you have the right combinations, in addition to your temperament, so you look at why does one child grow up in a in an environment and seem to do okay, and then another child in that same environment does not do okay. And what I've seen over the years, and it's it's you know true based on the studies and the research that's done, is that you may have a certain genetic mix and a certain temperament, and that may those mental health disorders may express in your life easier than someone else. But we're not victims, and that's the good news of the the rest of the story we're going to talk about today, is that we're not victims of all of this. It's just helpful to look at your family history, look at the people in your family to see what might be something that might be predisposed, and then look at the experiences that you've had and do some work in the preventive area and also make sure that you get treatment if you begin to express a mental health disorder early on, because the earlier we treat things, the better the outcome is of those problems. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment with Dr. Linda Mental, the relationship doctor. Um, I'm looking at a piece at drlindamental.com. How does the church help mental health? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Linda Mental from the Dr. Linda Mental Show and drlindamental.com. Um, Linda, talk with us during this during this Mental Health Awareness Month and Mental Health Awareness Week. Talk, talk with us about the church's place in helping to address mental health um, among members and in the community. It, it is so important. And I'm going to go through some of the benefits 
and the con contribution that the church provides for people in mental health in just a moment. And I want to say that, you know, we spend a lot of money on a lot of programs and trying to help people. And those are all good things that we're doing. But again, a religious revival and bringing the religious piece of people's life, the spiritual part of people's life back into the culture would do so much more in terms of helping people. And yet we're going the opposite direction, Carmen. We're taking this out of the culture when there are so many protective factors. So let me begin with, I teach at a medical school and I've taught at doctoral psychology programs and we have to teach Freud um, because he's one of the founders of modern psychiatry. And Freud was very anti-religion. He asserted that people that had, a re had religion had a massive neurosis, they were living in a dream world, it was a crutch, all this negativity. And actually the studies since Freud have proven that that's exactly wrong, um, even though we continue to teach as a historical thing about Freud. But religion and religious beliefs have, have been known now to become a very strong protective factor. So one of the things that religious beliefs do for you and having a faith-based um, belief in Jesus Christ especially is that you have meaning and you have purpose in your life. And so many people today are struggling with why am I here? What am I doing? If this is all there is, it's just random. I'm in pain. I need to, um, you know, check out. So having meaning and purpose, which we know is part of our faith, that every life is imaged in God. Every life has purpose, a plan. Uh, Jeremiah talks about this, that there's a plan for our lives. Our steps are ordered by the Lord if we're one of his. So this meaning and purpose is huge, along with uh, faith also brings hope that we always know that God is the God of the impossible, that you know the story is not completely written, that God's intervention in our lives can bring tremendous hope in very difficult and dark situations. And then the third thing that, that the church really provides, and it's so important in our culture, is community, because there is a public health epidemic of loneliness. And that has been one of the biggest problems in American life, especially then it was exacerbated during the pandemic. People are still a little bit fearful and a little bit anxious about going out into public and engaging in the way that we did pre-pandemic. And yet community is one of those factors that really, really makes a difference. I heard the song Rise Together that was playing right when we came into this segment. And that is so important that you need others to do life together. That's the name of my radio show. The tag is, it's better when you do life with other people and you don't do it alone. And the church really brings that opportunity with small groups and um, your ability to get to know people in a way that maybe you can do with your family because you don't have that type of family relationship. But these can be substitute communities for a lot of people and then important communities for people that do have strong family ties in terms of strengthening those relationships. And then I think another one that the church does is there's a positive impact on marriage. We see that and the stability of relationships. And it's probably that regular check-in to renew our minds on what is right about marriage and what, we're, what the biblical prescriptions are versus what we hear in the culture. And then I think a big one, this is really a big one in today's culture, uh, is that it reduces uh, substance use. The faith helps reduce substance use. 
suicide, anxiety, delinquency. And I'm, I'm going to park a little bit on the substance use one because so many people that are struggling, that are stressed, that are in emotional pain, turn to medicating themselves with um, alcohol, with drugs, with gambling. So I, that was the other thought I had yesterday with the Kentucky Derby is how many people lost money mm. and how people are in debt because of a gambling addiction. And this has become very popular with young people as well. They're gambling on all kinds of things. My daughter, who's in her 20s, said a lot of her male friends who grew up in the church are doing a lot of gambling and losing a lot of money on sports betting, internet gaming, all kinds of areas. So again, turning to the real source of satisfaction rather than medicating our pain, you can get free with Jesus. So those are the big ones. I guess coping skills too. The Bible is full of prescriptions on what you do to flourish in your life. These aren't a bunch of rules. They're not just like, you can't, you can't, you can't, which is the way a lot of times very fundamental churches present things. They're actually really strong coping mechanisms for how you renew your mind daily, how what principles bring health and wellness to the body, and how we can... Um, live in a way that really we flourish in our life based on scripture. So it always baffles me when a culture is so against faith, when this is the very thing that will bring health, flourishing, wellness to body, mind, and spirit. So there you have it. It's a really good way to live your life if you're a believer. It's so helpful. Um, let me let me read the list again. Um, just in addition to protective factors, um, that obviously we all recognize need to be in place, but churches can help prevent mental illness um, by you know, encouraging people to engage in religious activity, offering social support and safe community, um, offering family connectiveness, safe uh, maternal behaviors during uh, pregnancy. Like I think that this this support mechanism in this at this age and stage of life is so critical. And then the coping skills for stress and problem solving. Um, you, Linda Mental talks about it and unpacks each one of those in her article on her website, How Does the Church Help Mental Health? You can find it at drlindamental.com. Linda, as always, thank you so much. Um, th- I'm also, I'm, I think that one of the things I'm concerned about and looking at is people don't seem to turn to the church when there's a mental health crisis in their family. They turn to the medical community, and I totally understand that, but the medical community is in many places completely overwhelmed. And and, and so we need to kind of reassert the, the place, the willingness, the resources of the church in the midst of uh, a culture in real crisis. Totally agree. Yeah. Yep, the church can yeah. play a vital part. People need to see that as a safe place and a safe community as well. Absolutely. And the church needs to be prepared. All right, Dr. Linda Mental, um, thank you so much. She is the relationship doctor. You ought to be listening to her show right here on the Faith Radio Network. You're listening now to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. Welcome to the First Church of Mercy, where the doors of love swing open wide. No matter who you are, has everything in your life gone exactly as you expected? totally 100% according to plan. Nothing has ever gone wrong. Mm. Well, um, if you're not like that, uh, if you're a person who maybe is suddenly navigating a life that you did not expect to be living, um, 
Lisa um, Apollo is going to join us next, and she deeply understands the experience of literally waking up one morning and life being radically different. Um, she went to bed one night and woke up in the morning a widow, single mom to seven children, wrestling with all kinds of impossible questions. Um, but she found life-changing answers that are accessible to all of us. And she's going to share them with us next. The book is Life Can Be Good Again. Lisa Apollo joins us next. Lisa Apollo is joining us now. Her book is Life Can Be Good Again. Lisa, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. So I think I'd like to do this. Can you, um, and I know it takes emotional energy to do this, and so I know I'm asking you to do something hard. Um, so let me acknowledge that in advance. Can you take us back to the beginning of the summer of 2011? Um, you've been married to Dan for 25 years. I'd, I'd just like for you to talk about um, sort of what life was like before life became so different. Sure. Well, Dan and I had been high school sweethearts. We had met in seventh grade in youth group. So we had lived a lot of life together. We'd gotten married in college and, um, you know, started our careers together. He wanted two kids. I wanted three. And then God vetoed both of us. And we ended up with seven. Mm -hmm. So uh, life was very full, as you can imagine. I was at that time, I had, I had left my work as a, an attorney. I was home full time. I was just kind of the hub of the wheel of our family, getting people where they needed to go and, you know, raising kids, pouring into them. Uh, you know, it was not a perfect life by any stretch, but it was, it was a good life. And I think if you had asked me at that time in that summer, I would have said, this is, this is all I could want out of life. Mm. Um, Dan and I um, were at the University of Florida together at the same time. I mean, I had no way of knowing that until I read so much more about the two of you, but I was a young oh, life leader. Goodness at oh, wow! And so oh, I know you're it's kidding. so like bizarre, like the intersections. Um, I mean, I just like, I feel like I, I know the terrain that you were running around in, um, as a high school and college student. And, um, and then these just precious seven children, your son had just left to go to work at a summer camp. You and Dan, um, had just returned from a trip to the Keys. I just, Take us, you know, I mean, maybe take us to the day before the day and then take us to the day, because I feel like there's this like way that a page in a book turns and everything is literally different in, in the in the crease of that. You are so right. And I think anybody who's walked any kind of life that implodes, you know, either suddenly or slowly, you, you, those moments are etched forever. The details are etched forever. So yeah, I had been with Dan away for four days. That never happened. That was just pure gift. And I didn't even realize at the time how much, but we had time. We, we drove in his truck he had a business meeting in the keys and wanted me to go. We had time to just revisit places that had been special to us. Some of our first date places, you know, to relive, to talk. I was with him. I saw there were no signs 
no symptoms. We got home and had pizza as a family. It seemed very ordinary. I had a busy day the next day. So the kids kind of went up to bed. Dan was working on his computer and he said, um, I said, I'm headed to bed, hon. And he said, okay, I'm going to do some stuff for my mom and I'll be there in a minute. So the next thing I really know, I woke up to his strange breathing and it wasn't even really enough to open my eyes, but I reached out my hand and just nudged him and said, it's okay. It's just a nightmare fully expecting him to turn over and we'd go back to sleep and we'd wake up to his alarm in a couple hours, but he didn't turn over. And as I woke more to his continued breathing flipped on the overhead light, I could see that something was just terribly wrong. And so, you know, life both froze and fast forwarded time warps in those situations. And, um, you know, I was doing all the things I needed to do. And at the same time, I was thinking to myself, kind of watching, not in an out of body at all experience, but just watching myself give CPR to Dan thinking I am not giving CPR to the man. I just kissed goodnight to like the father of our children to our earthly rock. Um, they took, you know, the paramedics were there. I didn't even get through two full rounds. The paramedics took him by stretcher to the emergency room. And I went up to pray with my kids and then followed by car to the hospital. And, um, and Dan went to be with the Lord. He and did. I, and I think that, um, no one, I mean, no one, anyone who hasn't walked this journey, um, and you don't have any way of knowing this, but my dad died of a heart attack when I was, um, when I was 15 okay, and, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I was in Tampa and, um, and in high school. And so this experience that your children had, this experience that you had, it's not, um, I mean, there's this, this, this point in time, but literally life changes so massively in ways that we did not anticipate. So I, I'd love for you to talk about that because it, you process through this publicly in a really extraordinary way and uh, need to tell everybody who's listening in right now. Lisa has a website, Lisa Apollo, A-P-P-E-L-O is what you're looking for. Lisa, A-P-P-E-L-O.com. The book is uh, Life Can Be Good Again. And yes, for those of you texting in, I do have copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Talk with us about sort of even getting to the place where you can put your feet back on the floor and breathe again. Yeah. I think in those first, you know, it took me a long time. I was very grief naive. Uh, it, the, I remember the morning after, even the mornings after it felt like groundhog day all over again for like a split second, my eyes would wake and, and then this like heavy weight that felt like the x-ray blanket of just despair and grief would, would blanket me. And I probably would have pulled those covers up over my head and I don't know what I would have done, but I had seven children and I just had to coach myself, Lisa, they have lost one parent. They cannot lose another. And so I would put my feet to the floor and I did not show up perfectly, but I showed up as well as I could. I just needed to love them through this. We were all going through something so new and you are right these kind of life losses, and it could be a spouse who walks out suddenly with an, I never loved you or 
that phone call you never expected or that diagnosis that comes. There are just a lot of ways that life can shatter really in loss. For me, one of the keys that really helped was I would get my kids kind of started in the morning and then I would get away by myself. I say, some people have a prayer closet. I have a minivan (laughs) and I would go around the corner to this little park and in my minivan, I could just, you know, nobody called, nobody walked through my room. I just had this private time with the Lord to audibly cry out, to journal, to just, just give him all of my fear and my worry. We were a single income family. I worried about my children, their health, how they would react in grief. I had no idea what the future held or how in the world I was going to raise these kids to be adults, you know, and in that, in that minivan, I would just kind of lay this all out, all of my hard emotions, all of my hard questions, I would give it to the Lord. And then I would open up the word. I was reading through the Bible for the year and I had not started that. That was actually, Dan was doing that. And after his service, I picked up his journal and his reading plan and just kind of kept going. Mm. So wherever I was for that day, I didn't go look for scripture, but wherever I was for that day, God would meet me. If it was, you know, the Psalms or Matthew, it did not matter. God would lift my head and give me enough hope to go back into the house and do the task for that day. It wasn't enough for the week. I had to go back the next day and do it again. Lisa, one of the things I really appreciate um, about you and the book and uh, and your very sort of open and public conversation you're having with all of us about this is you invite us and bear witness to processing hard emotions with God, not apart from God. Um, you get right there. You get right in there with Him. Yeah, we have to. We cannot skip over that or mask it. You know, we so want to feel good again. That is just our nature, but we have to walk through that hard emotion and process it if we are going to move forward well. And, you know, I always said, if we don't deal with our hard emotions now on our terms, they come back later on, on their terms. And there are emotions, you know, sometimes we can question, we can think we should be, I should be doing better or I shouldn't be feeling this, but these emotions are just signs that, that, um, they're not signs that we're handling our hurt all wrong. They're signs that our circumstances have gone wrong. And so what do we do with these? Cause they're too much for one human heart to hold. And so I just found, I kind of just fell into this. This was not anything I knew to do. And I have since learned that the Bible has a name for it and it's called lament. And in lament, we take God, we take all of those hard emotions to God and we bring them to him and just leave them there. And then we choose to trust God's comfort and his faithfulness. And it is a day in day out, sometimes moment by moment, task where over and over, and we see this in the Psalms so beautifully where David would say, how long, oh Lord, are you going to let this? Or, you know, he would, he would complain about his enemies chasing him or the injustice that he saw. And he would just bring these emotions to God, but then he would always finish the Psalms, but I trust you, Lord. And in that we, God really helps us process those hard emotions. If you have a life that has fallen apart and you um, want some really good godly counsel on putting your world back together, the book is Life Can Be Good Again, Putting Your World Back Together After It Falls Apart. Uh, We are giving away copies today. If you'd like to enter the drawing, 
Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Lots of other resources available from Lisa Apollo, A-P-P-E-L-O, lisaapolo.com. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Lisa Apollo. She is a Bible study teacher in Jacksonville. She's a mom to seven very active people. Um, she's also uh, a widow, and she shares with us um, her own wisdom and wit and experience in life can be good again, putting your world back together after it all falls apart. We are giving away copies today. If you'd like to enter the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Lisa, one of the things that I really appreciated about the book are um, these like three scriptural steps that you share with us um, when we are paralyzed by fear. Wondering if you could just um, at least highlight those. Sure. So I, a friend told me about a verse because I was paralyzed by fear. I realized that I was parenting out of fear, that I wasn't able to make decisions because this fear was just like a vice grip on me. And I knew that I was going to have to do something with it. I couldn't, I couldn't keep living like that. And so she gave me the scripture, second Corinthians 10, five, which tells us to take all of our thoughts captive to the truth of Christ. And so I began to do that very intentionally. This wasn't just like some, you know, pie in the sky verse that I, you know, read once. It was something I put into practice. And I would, when a fear, when I would realize that I had this fear that I was, it was in my mind, I would first step call out the lie because all fear is driven by a lie. So take the fear that I had for our income, for our finances. We were a one income family. That income was now gone. And I was really fearful of how in the world I was going to raise these children and and meet the expenses of our family. And so that's a lie because God says that you know, he will take care of us and that he will provide for us. And so to think that now all of a sudden that that didn't apply, that was a lie. So the second thing is to, the second step is to take that captive. I would actually imagine that lie being lassoed in my mind almost and being just like yanked out. And then the third step is to replace it with the truth of Christ. And so we replace it with either the character of God or we replace it with a promise of God. So for that um, fear that I had for our income and our finances, one of the promises that we see in the Bible is that God says that he will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, Philippians 419. And so that became the truth that I constantly replaced my that lie with. And it was very clunky. I mean, honestly, at first when I would do this, I would go step by step. But what I found was that as I did this more and more, it's like a muscle. The more I did this, the easier it became. And the less that fear was even part of my parenting or decisions or, you know, lingering in my thoughts. Mm. Um, I love that. I love practical tools. I'm a visual person. And so um, bringing a passage of scripture to life, I mean, I, I'm one of those actually like physically put on the full armor of God people every morning. Like I'm, I visualize in uh, Ephesians 6. I am also a person who practices what you talk about 
in terms of the application and integration of Second Corinthians 10.5. I see Jesus in my mind taking hold of those thoughts that I know are contrary um, to who I know God to be and what God has revealed about himself and his will. It's fantastic. So thank you so much. It's a wonderful equipping tool for each and every one of us. Yeah. Um, so instead of like thinking about massive light, life-altering change, um, which you experienced in one way, but other people do experience in other ways as well, you talk about like not not seeing that as oh everything's off the rails God lost track of the narrative you know everything is spinning out of control instead you you invite us to consider that it it might be God's purposeful like chapter two um, can you talk about that yes this really came late for me it was not in the first year of my grief but somewhere in the second year of my grief. I was just, again, I think I was alone in my minivan with the Lord and probably journaling, probably just thinking these thoughts that, you know, I don't like my life. And we'd been through every first. I thought if we had gone, if we would just could get through every first that we would be okay. But what I found was that the second year can sometimes be harder, that the reality of this is my life now, and it's never going back. Mm. Um, really sets in into places and can pull, it pulled me into despair that I had never tasted. And so in that many, you know, that day in my minivan, just saying, I don't like my life. This is not the script I wanted. This is not the life I ordered. And in the same moment, just not hearing God audibly say this, but sensing him say, you know, I do not do plan B this it, since I've allowed it, then it is by definition filled with as much abundance and joy and good as all the days before, because I was really giving into the lie again, that, you know, I was living second best that I got mm. the leftovers of the life that I wanted and everybody else was out there living their best life. But I was like, you know, consigned to living out this second best life. And when I realized that, no, this was God's intentional chapter two, and it was not what I expected, but it was what he completely allowed, then it didn't immediately change my, it, I didn't immediately feel better. Like, oh, okay, well, I'm all well now. But what it did is it changed my perspective and it helped me lean into the, that truth so that I could um, hope that life would be good again until my heart caught up with it and until my you know, my grief caught up with that. And I saw that, you know, bear out in my life. Hmm. Um, it doesn't happen fast. Um, and it doesn't, uh, in my experience, like happen, and then you can check it off and you're done with it. And you're never going back to that space again. Um, I find, uh, I have found in my life that we revisit some, uh, some places in our experience of grief. I appreciate that you talk about like, this didn't happen in the first year, like somewhere in my second year of grief. Um, talk with us a little bit about walking with others in uh, in what can only be described as like traumatic changes, uh, traumatic transitions in life, um, and allowing there to be like space and room and time for the journey of grief that's unique for each individual. Yes, I think... I don't think our culture does this well. I think our culture tends to put a timeline on grief 
and expectations on grief. And sometimes we can take those on ourselves. And I'm not sure if that comes through, you know, movies or tales or just our own expectations of, of, you know, healing. But I do think you're exactly right that we need to give others space and grace to grieve because it takes a long time. Listen, how in the world do you process the loss of a child or a miscarriage or a dream or a a marriage that was, you know, together for 15 years and has now been ripped apart? How do you, how long does it take to grieve somebody that, that God has knit from two into one that has fathered your children? All of these things take enormous amounts of time and hard work. It is enormous, you know, emotional, mental, spiritual, physical work to process deep loss. And so as a community, the best gift we can give somebody is um, time to walk with them, to stay with them in the long term, to not just disappear after the memorial service or a month later, to remember the important dates, to text them encouragement, to send a card now again, to bring, you know, invite them out for coffee. We can't fix it. If we're walking with somebody, we can't fix their pain. So nothing we can say is going to, to fix it, but we can be with them in it. And I heard recently that the three best words to tell somebody when they're hurting are you are not alone. Mm. And those are beautiful words. Listen, we can say it with our words or we can do it with our actions, but you're not alone in this. And those are the words that God tells us all through scripture. You know, I am with you. I am with you in the valley. I am walking before you. I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes because I, I feel like the testimony about being there, showing up, saying, um, like manifesting that you're not alone is so important. And we do get busy. We return to the rhythms of whatever our life was before our friend um, or neighbor or fellow church member literally can't return to the life that they have now lost. And so thank you for that um, really good and important reminder. Lisa, we got to leave it right here today, but I want to direct people to the resources also at hopeingrief.com. You guys can visit with Lisa on her website, Lisa Apollo, A-P-P-E-L-O.com. The book, uh, Life Can Be Good Again. We are giving away copies today. If you want to enter the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. Thank you so much for this time together today. Let's visit again, myfaithradio.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.